This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing that. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. And your suffering will be legendary even in hell. <laughs> it's alive, it's alive, it's alive. They all flow down here. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, you're On our show tonight, Howling Under the Full Moon, we will explore Charles Band's Empire Full Moon Entertainment. We've got trancers, sci-fi epics, and vampires all in one place. When you need a break from reality, let our host show you through the madhouse of killer bombs, psychopathic cookies, and maniacal puppets. Don't be a squid and join us in the fun. In a house of mysteries. This hotel seems to have quite a history, Mr. Gallagher. Who are you people? A research team with special powers. <gasps> oh my god. She's experiencing the past. Because we are all joined by our thoughts. <laughs> Has uncovered an ancient secret. I have something I want to show you. <laughs> Metaphysically speaking, I killed myself. <laughs> but they are playing with an evil force. What would you do with the power? You can't save her, Alex. They have given life to a deadly power. We're all in danger. And now, a box of little toys. I think someone's in the room, Frank. Has become a gang of little terrors. Pinhead. Blade. Ms. Leach. Jester and Tunneler. Irene Miracle, Paul Lamatt, Barbara Crampton, and William Hickey as the Puppet Master. Alrighty, folks, welcome once again to Cinema G Generations Howling at the Full Moon. And we have a legendary uh, slice of film history for you this evening. You know, it's often said that Full Moon is the house the Puppet Master built. And with the, even the, you know, franchises like uh, Ginger Dead Man, Evil Bong, Trancers, amongst, you know, got tons of others. Uh, Puppet Master is the, the flagship franchise, and we are going to be reviewing and dissecting 1989's OG original Puppet Master, directed by David Schmoller. It doesn't come any bigger than this. 
And, and with me, as usual, is my faithful co-host and cohort in crime, Dustin Hubbard. How we doing, Dustin? Hey, I am doing great. You ready to talk some puppets? I most <laughs> definitely am ready to talk some puppets. Yeah, now this, now we can get into, you know, a little bit of the other chapters of the franchise a little bit if we want to, but I would like to try to, you know, center on the movie and the task at hand. But I got to ask, just for argument's sake, what is your favorite uh, chapter of the, the the Puppet Master Legacy, given reboots and solo movies and, you know, spinoffs and all? Uh, my answer is the cliche one. My favorite Puppet Master is part three. I'm the cliche as well, because three is my favorite. <laughs> and then most likely followed by part two. So, Yeah, mine probably go three, two... I kind of like four and five, to, to be honest. And after that, they're they're kind of varying quality. You know, I, I like a couple of the Axis movies, but yeah, not not so much uh, the Littlest Reich. That was that was weird. Puppet Master versus Demonic Toys is the one that's always eluded me. It's the only one that I haven't seen. But from everything that I've heard, especially from what you've told me, I. Probably going to wish I hadn't seen it when I do. <laughs> it's definitely a, a franchise that, you know, has lasted a long time. I mean, it's it's been around for over 30 years. We've got, you know, we're looking at a potential, counting two non-canon films, a potential 15th film uh, being made this year. So uh, there's a lot of content. There's a lot of... Uh, mythology and uh history with what's going on and there's you know with any franchise that's went on that long there's a lot of ups and downs and really uh grandiose high points and some really um deplorable low points but uh puppet master one is uh definitely not a low point i will i will say that no it's a fair to midland point i would say yeah it's a it's a it's a it's, it's where it all started it's an amusing, most definitely serviceable installment that actually uh, was good enough to start a literal phenomenon. So, I mean, it it started the uh, you know the entire company. I mean, when uh, Charlie had to after the collapse of Empire Pictures, you know, this was his first picture and it was supposed to be uh, a theatrical release that they pushed to direct a video like in October. It was eighty nine, wasn't it, when it was actually released? Yes, 89. Yeah. And they bumped it from a theatrical release to DVD, well, not DVD, but VHS release at the time. You know, basically, Charlie thought he could make more money than he could in the theatrical market because everything was so saturated at that point. And I think it proved a, a, a good move. You know, it may not have made the money it would have in, in theaters, but, you know, definitely. I was always looking forward to every about every year, every other year, you know, in the 90s, you could count on another Puppet Master movie coming out. It's, you know, it's one of those things where it's like it might not have seemed very, you know, they didn't make millions with each film or anything like you can in in theatrical. But uh, something that I think a lot of younger modern viewers don't really or won't really put into perspective is the fact that you could make movies like this. And, yeah, they could have. You know, some of these Paramount era movies had larger budgets, quote unquote, larger budgets for B movies, you know, in the hundred plus thousand, you know, 
range, uh, which is a lot of money. But then if you're signing deals where you're selling, you know, tens of thousands of VHS tapes, which might not sound that great, but back then there was no sell through, you know, you couldn't just go buy movies, you know, at your, oh, no. you know, they s- sold these to retailers, you know, rental outlets for us a high markup they were literally you know somewhere from 60 to more than likely a hundred dollars per tape so if you sold eighty thousand units multiply that by a hundred you made eight hundred thousand dollars you know yeah i mean eighty thousand and it's like you made insane amounts of money actually if you sold eighty thousand units uh wouldn't that, that that'd be eight million dollars if they were a hundred hundred dollars a tape? Oh yeah, well there you go. So you are making millions. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you think a couple hundred thousand investment, and you're making, you know, a good ten times your money back. That's how you finance your sequels and finance your next movie. And that's the dream for us all, isn't it? You know, as, as indie low budget filmmakers, is to have the one movie make enough move money in return to finance the next film. Yeah, so these, I mean, these movies did, you know, all the all the Paramount era full moon movies. I mean, they made bank because they they sold really well. And you know, there were some some things, you know, especially like some side labels and stuff that didn't sell as well as the Full Moon brand. But uh, Full Moon and Moonbeam, they they killed it. So they made big big bank for. Paramount and Full Moon. Yeah, I mean, it, once again, like I said, uh, you know, Full Moon was the house of Puppet Master built, and it paved the way for them to be able to make things like Dollman and Demonic Toys, and and continue with you know the Transfer series, and you know, they're they're closing in on four hundred uh, feature films, so they ain't, they ain't slowing down anytime soon. So we got a lot of work ahead of us. Yeah, a lot of that, you know, that money to help establish. You know what ended up being their their stomping grounds in Romania that became a popular shooting location for many years. You know, at Castel Film. So you know, yeah, and here we are, thirty plus years later, nearly four hundred films. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Yeah, but, well, since we've been doing this show for gosh, uh, well over a year, not quite a year and a half yet, but but well over a year. I thought it was about high time that we, uh, no pun intended, high time that we uh, talked about this pinnacle fucking film. And let's go ahead and get right off into it. Uh, The IMDb synopsis is as follows. For Puppet Master, 1989. Psychics find themselves plotted against a former colleague who committed suicide after discovering animated murderous puppets. And that's fair, very very short and concise, uh, you know, synopsis mm-hmm. of the movie i feel like there's a lot more going on and for the first movie in a series there is a lot going on because i remember watching this i tried to you know even for review watches i tried to pretend like i'm watching it for the first time even though i know i've seen this dozens of times over the years but you know it's really confusing in the beginning as to what's going on you know when you get those opening shots of the bodega bay hotel which i made a note it was a miniature I did not know this until I started uh, diving into some behind-the-scenes stuff. It was yep. a miniature that they built on a refrigerator door. Yep, a hanging miniature. 
That's amazing. I, I, I applaud them for that. I never would have guessed. <laughs> very, very large miniature that they just, you know, got positioned in just the right spot and with the right angles and lighting, just, you know, positioned it next to the coast and it looked like an actual building uh, right on the coast. Yeah, and I, the first note I really have about this movie that's not trivia is that opening score. That it's become so synonymous with what Puppet Master is, and it's just, uh, for lack of better term, is magical. It's just like it's promising of things to come. Uh, I, I love Richard Band's, um, you know, uh, Charlie's brother. I love his score. He's he gets the MVP award for this one. Uh, just an amazing score. Yeah, the theme is one of I think the the great horror themes uh, in the entire genre. Oh yeah, definitely. But as we open, we open in the good old fifty years past in nineteen thirty-nine. William Hickey playing the, the first iteration of Andre Toulon, and I I would probably, and this isn't a, a detriment to the movie; it's not a negative. But I would be willing to bet that if, when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, William Hickey is probably the most benign. Andre Toulon that we get, all the rest of the actors that come <laughs> along that play him are a lot more maniacal. He's, yeah, uh, William Hickey as Andre Toulon is very sedate and calm and <laughs> very feeble feeling, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, you know. He felt like he, somebody who was on the edge of death and was, was like, knew that he was going to die and had given up the ghost. And I feel like Hickey had had some health issues that, you know, uh, made him older than he he was old for that time. But he had health issues, you know, like uh, kind of like reverse Benjamin Button kind of thing where he he had issues that made him age a lot more than he should have kind of age prematurely. Yes. And, you know, that's you can especially see like right around the same time he had, you know, played uh, one of the grandpas in Christmas Vacation as well. Oh, that's yeah, that's right. He's, he played the uncle with the cigar that set the, the cat on yeah. fire. I remember <laughs> pretty uh, feeble on that, too. So, you know, no, and no, and no detriment to to him. You know, his Andre is definitely unique but i think he is probably one of the least memorable or the least memorable for me as a viewer uh, just, i would i would i would uh say probably my favorite is guy rolf oh there that's the only correct answer <laughs> <laughs> the only correct answer the uh, you know william hickey and i i don't i don't think it was any detriment to his uh performance or participation i just he doesn't have anything to do so no yeah. he's not on screen really long enough you know to really do much i think he was an afterthought in this movie and didn't really become you know such a major character till obviously to the later sequels he is you know to his credit william hickey was an academy award nominated actor so oh, a fine actor yeah it's he, nothing against his performance it's just he played it off a little bit more yeah. benign, you know? He had the skill. Um, I often look back at Puppet Master 1 as, and again, no detriment to the film either, but I I always kind of saw him doing Puppet Master as kind of 
probably him taking a paycheck too. Yep, probably at the time. I'm willing to bet you're right on that. Probably about two years out after his Academy Award nomination. So for for uh, I believe Pritzy's honor. So you know, I think that did come out in like six eighty seven. It was probably within a couple of years. Fast trajectory from being nominated for an Academy Award to being the puppet master. <laughs> <laughs> you know, God bless him for being our our first puppet master. So, yes, yes. But you know, as soon as we get the, into the the hotel, the Bodega Bay, beautiful like location, <clears throat> the actual hotel itself. You know, not the, the miniature itself is also very good. But, you know, we opened in 1939. Clearly, at the beginning, we have two characters that are, you know, they don't come out and say it, but they're Nazis. You know, the the, the, the Nazi kind of theme, I guess, wouldn't become, wouldn't come full circle to part, part three. Yeah, that, that full story about what even was going on, like why they were even in pursuit of him, wasn't even really, you know, detailed. They don't even, I don't think they ever even mentioned nazis in this first movie you can correct me if i'm wrong uh because those characters are literally just built as assassins i believe in the credits I don't think they ever mention it. I think they the word Nazi is never mentioned. But to me, it's 1939. They're clearly Nazis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. But you know, uh, even if it was unintentional, that would be the motif they would go with with the later sequels. Yeah. So you know, they're they were building lore before they even knew they were building lore. Yep. And I do have one little uh, note here that we get a lot of neat little tracking shots. Those low level. You know, ground level tracking shots where we get, you know, it's the point of view of Blade. Let's face it, it's it's Blade, who was based off. Of, I didn't know this. I didn't know this bit of trivia. I always thought he looked like him, so it was funny to find out that he was based off of Klaus Kinski, who David Schmoller had worked with on Carl Space, another movie that I really love. But then it, I think it's ironic that he would be played by another bad guy, you know, movie heavy that you know that was again our favorite. Part three with Richard Lynch. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we'll get it. We'll get into that. We don't want to talk too much about the, the sequels. There's, we got enough room to, to talk about those at another day. But see, and everything builds. Everything builds. Just, just to say, you know, those those opening scenes with the blade POV shots. You know, again, I think that's something that a lot of younger modern audiences aren't going to take into consideration, like how fantastic some of those scenes are, especially for a film of this scale, because you know everything was you know you're you're dealing with 35 millimeter cameras and stuff you know so to get get those movements and angles and flow of you know right well, is is an achievement so yeah to get that on 35 millimeter i i think today's younger generation probably does just doesn't appreciate it is much yeah, it's not something you can just like instant gratification, you know, shoot it and be like, oh, look, yeah, it looks great. Cool. Let's move on. No, you it was it was a process and it was time consuming and it was hard. 
I think my favorite part of these low-level tracking shots is the one where it runs up on the old lady that turns around and, get, and shrieks at the camera and throws her hands up to finally get that like revealing shot of Blade when he throws his hands up and yells in, in shock at the same time. Yep. It's kind of unintentional or purely intentional humor, but you know, this movie is pretty dark, and I wouldn't say mean spirited, but it's not like a fun loving kind of movie. You know what I mean? It's uh, it, it was just a rare comical moment in this movie. Yeah, but it is it is one of our first, if not, I believe actually the first real moment of that some of that early magic that makes puppet master memorable and important and one of the key factors that really made this franchise special was the stop motion animation by dave allen yeah dave allen i had him down is he doing the special effects and all the puppet effects i I think the early films especially i mean what that's why i think a lot of the later films suffer for you know the the puppets you know using cgi using strings and whatnot but it's that stop motion that really sells it it's it's, it's, it's beautiful big, to look at yeah it's a big factor as why a lot of fans today don't like the newer stuff but it's stop motion is hard and it is time consuming and it is you know it can be expensive so it's not something that you can just bang out real fast you know and make you know look good right <laughs> right you, know, you can spend a whole week or two you know just to get like one second of footage you know it's so. just not feasible that's why it's a, a dead not even a dying art form it's a dead art form because it's just not even feasible to do yeah, in like, today's like you know tim burton budgets you're like sure you can go make like the corpse bride and you know nightmare before christmas and that kind of stuff you know because you have millions of dollars to to play around with that you know these movies they just especially nowadays they don't have that paramount money doesn't exist anymore so you kind of take what you can get so right yeah you know, it is what it is you know but I'll, I'll take i'll take a lesser sequel you know than no sequels at all right Absolutely. Okay, we get past the Nazis because the Nazis don't uh, get to Toulon in time. Uh, you know, basically, I mean, instead of being taken, Toulon knows that he even says to Blade when Blade shows up at his door, you know, finally gets to his room. And he's like, yes, yes, we know, we've, we've seen them coming, but Toulon blows his own brains out. So it's one of those, you know, he would return for quite a few sequels, but this, you know, movie is the first in the series, but not first in the timeline. So we would get more Toulon much, much later. When he shoots himself, too, even him shooting himself is very sedate and relaxed because he doesn't even really have any kind of, like, violent reaction once he's shot himself in the mouth. He just kind of, the blood splatters, and he just kind of gingerly just puts his head back. <laughs> like, Yeah, it's, it, se it seems a little... Uh... Lacking emphasis, doesn't it? <laughs> but then it has the weirdest of transitions right here. All of a sudden it just goes Yale, you know, present day. And the doc is, uh, you know, this professor, this doctor is having one hell of a nightmare, you know, and that that's his, but that's his also, you know, not his burden, but that's his gift is, is dreaming. And like, 
I, I think it's just very awkward when you see Paul Lamette just sitting at his table with that, you know, at his desk with that really uh, gorgeous mane of, of, of hair that, that that's, yeah. that's the most beautiful mullet of 1989. The, yeah, the, the mullet of power is like this. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like a mane. It's great. It's luxurious, isn't it? <laughs> it's like the cowardly lion. Like it's it's very it's got body and quaff to it. <laughs> like Yeah, it does. Oh, uh but then he, he has that dream where he sees uh our Neil Gallagher, which would or will kind of become our, our main villain of the movie. And he's like, You can't save her, Alex, and he wakes up kind of wakes up partially from the dream and he has the leeches, you know on his chest and seeping through his shirt and whatnot, but then it cuts and then without any kind of rhyme or reason, we don't really know who he is. It cuts to the, uh, the carnival, I think next where we get our, uh, where, uh, the, uh what's her name? Dana yep. is like, yeah, she's reading poems and we get, which bears mentioning. We got to mention it. The nameless woman at the carnival is played by the lovely Barbara Crampton in a little cameo, which I th- I thought was a nice little wink and a nod to the the reanimator uh, uh, bolt, you know, not full moon, but uh, the from beyond days. Yep. But Irene Miracle would play uh, Dana, and she is a the world's worst um, soothsayer, I guess you could say. She's a, she's kind of doing the. Uh, the the John Edwards kind of thing, just guessing random stuff like, oh, your grandmother's going to die. And like, oh, she's already dead. Oh, I'm sorry. Then I guess it's your grandmother, isn't it? And she turns to the other guy. It's <laughs> and is am I right? Like, I, I didn't look it up on the IMDb or, or uh, Wikipedia or anything, but is the guy that's with Barbara Crampton at, at Dana's, isn't that the director? Uh, the guy that's with Barbara Crampton? Yeah. That is David Boyd. I, in all honesty, I believe that is Barbara Crampton's now ex-husband. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I was wrong. He does, though, he, since you mentioned it, though, he does have a slight resemblance to director David Schmoller. Though David Schmoller, a defining factor for him is uh, his very full beard he always has a, a very full beard so that's what i thought i thought it was him with the slightly trimmed beard you know because he just had the kind of the three-day stubble kind of look but okay <laughs> i thought it looked like him but anyways anyways but you know we get the you know dana starts kind of trying to sell them on the fact that they need to get married because he's going to be rich and you know this that and the other but then she has a real vision, you know, I'm going to say oopsie. She has real vision and in, decides to call in all her psychic friends and her team. What's that? Yeah, oopsie daisy. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, see what you did there. Uh, still haven't watched that. Still haven't watched that. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> but, you know, she she has the vision of the, uh, the pup, you know, the puppets in the hotel and whatnot. So she's freaking out. And she knows that. It, that this Neil Gallagher character has died, and so they're all going to gather. She calls all her psychic friends in to go to the Bodega Bay Hotel, but not before we get introduced to, I think, the creepiest two characters, uh, Frank and <laughs> Clarissa. They're just creepy. Yeah, Frank and Clarissa are two very weird 
kind of he's very sleazy feeling and she's very just weird yeah she's just very odd Catherine O'Reilly is just very base cadet e and he yeah very he just he has a very untrustworthy vibe to me as a character He's like the type of guy that you're pretty sure like has like a, a really unique porn cachet in his collection. <laughs> he's just he's always just very skeezy, very slimy, and just like always trying to use her to you, you know to, to for just sexual ways. It was just really really an odd relationship that they had. Like they were doing like some psycho kind of dream therapy at the beginning when they're introduced. You know, was this the, the Bodega Bay, you know, sex research lab? They never, again, never explained that. Never explained what Alex's real job is other than he's a professor at Yale. Uh, the only person we really know who does what they do for a living is Dana is a soothsayer, you know. She, and, well, Alex is what? He's a professor of anthropology. That's right. They do say that later on, don't they? Yeah. I don't, I don't know what Frank and Carissa do, though. They, they kind of have like, uh, you know, reminds me of some of the experiments they were doing in like Ghostbusters two, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like like somewhere between Ghostbusters and uh, uh, I was going to say the you know the Nightmare on Elm Street Research Lab. It's like the Great Value version of the Cat Jeff Dream Institute. <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to know what that machine he kept, you know, like changing the settings on. Like, what was that doing? Like <laughs> it was manning the uh, the Starship Enterprise is what that was doing. It was doing science. That's, that's what it, it was, was sciencing out. You yeah. just don't understand the metaphysics. I yeah, I don't understand the metaphysics of it because I'm not a scientist. So or or a magician either, right? Or that. Oh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, they get. They get to the uh, they get to the hotel. We we get uh, our introduction of Teresa. The, I guess you would just say the kind of the oh, the overlook of the hotel. You know the 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 maid because the hotel has been shut down for renovations. And we get uh, Megan. Megan, uh, who is Neil's Megan Gallagher, who is Neil's uh, wife or was his wife, I guess you could say. And I forgot the actress's name that played her. Robin Freights. Am I correct? Yeah, Robin Freights. And uh, I don't know that I've seen her in anything else, to be honest. I don't know. I, I remember her from Man's Best Friend, but that's really about it. Yeah, I believe she had the introductory billing on this movie. So I believe it was her first uh, big role, possibly, in a film. I could be wrong. Uh, she has numerous credits for 89. But uh, I'm not overly familiar with her from anything else, personally. I, I haven't seen Man's Best Friend in a hot minute. And I know she was in The Arrival, which... Uh, uh, now, that's one I haven't seen in a hot minute. That that was another Schmoller film uh, with John Saxon and Joseph Culp. But I haven't seen that one in a good number of years as well. I remember enjoying it, but uh, I don't remember anything... Uh, regarding her in it. So, yeah, me, but me I, either. Me either. I think she's good in Puppet Master, though. I think she's she she plays the role good. You know, the character's supposed to be the one character of the movie that's innocent and kind of 
basically unaware of what the hell's going on, you know, at least like to the what Neil has been up to. Yeah, she's definitely very sympathetic feeling. So, yeah, very sympathetic, very innocent, and she plays it off very well. But you figured out that Neil had committed suicide and he didn't want to be buried until the group had, quote unquote, showed up and paid their last respects. And a real, like, peculiar way, you know, when the Dana and the other two, uh, uh, Frank and Clarissa, stay behind, she has a really peculiar way of trying to find out that, like, Neil is in fact dead by sticking that pin through his chest. It's like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. You know, she could have just tapped him on the head or tickled him or something like that. And she had to stick it. Why was she even carrying that? Like, like what the hell was that even for? Yeah, I don't, I know, because it has like a giant, like, stone, you know, like a, you know, jewel thing on the top, which is presumably plastic. You know, I mean, yeah, and the thing is like a foot long. You know, what the hell was that even for? You know, what, what was this basic use? weapon to me like literally it looks like some kind of like weird weapon i don't know why she would even have it on her because none of them were oh you know and it's mentioned you know after the fact but none of them were aware of neil being dead so it's not like she knew she was going to need that to to test him being alive or not so i don't know why she i guess it's maybe just because she's a nasty bitch that's it. By her own accord, in her own words, she is a nasty bitch. A nasty bitch. <laughs> yep. But Muse Small, I, I love her. I love her. I, I recognize her instantly from this. Uh, she played the bl- uh, the blind Iris from Class Reunion, which is a, a, a great horror comedy that I absolutely love. But she's, uh, you know, there's the groundskeeper, Teresa, and Dana warns her, you know, don't go by the fireplace. And after a couple of dream sequences, after, you know, we have, you know, I call it Alex vision. And when he has the vision of, you know, like, oh, you can't, you can't, you know, save her Alex again. Then Clarissa vision gets the vision of like Neil uh, assaulting a lady on the elevator. And then she has the vision number two, where she has the vision of Clark Gable and Carrie Lombard getting it on in their bedroom, which is just ridiculous. <laughs> but she, just, you, it's like every time something happens and she's around, she kind of just has like a like it's not even like she starts to sense something. She just sort of like it's like a light switch got flipped and she's just like <gasps> and she's like grabbing her chest or something. And, you know, and it's just like she's suddenly like fully physically uh, affected by the uh, the metaphysics of something that happened where she wasn't. It seems very unnatural to me. She's I find Carissa to be a very irritating character personally. I find her the same way. I find Clarissa irritating and Frank just creepy. Yeah, yes. they, they seem like that like that creepy couple that, that's hitting on you at the bar that's trying to take you home and, and get some swinger action or something. Like there's something but like that, but more evil going on. <laughs> yep. It's like, yeah, you're at the swingers like party and you're like hoping to God that like you don't like pull his keys out of the cup. <laughs> <laughs> like that. That, that's a good way of putting it, sir. I, I like the cut of your jib there. I like that. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> But she warns her to go, don't go by the the fireplace. And we can jump around in this a little bit because not too long later, 
we finally, you know, uh, between her de- this and her death scene, you know, we get our finally first glimpse of the puppets in like 20 minutes where we get Penhead creeping out of the coffin. I love that. Some more of that great David Allen work. That's a great shot. But, you know, is this like, even though Dana is quite the uh, <clears throat> the bitch, she, she was right. She was right about like uh, Teresa having to avoid that fireplace because of what happens. Puppet killer. Teresa should have just stayed away from the fireplace because they 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 beat her to death with a goddamn fire poker. I mean, if she'd have listened, you know, she Pinhead, might be alive. Pinhead draws first puppet blood. That's Wait. right. Yeah, he he's the first puppet in any of the movies to draw blood. <laughs> but Dana at at the dinner scene, you know, after we get our our kind of our two post. Uh, vision scenes you know between clarissa having her visions and alex having his visions of you know things to come dana is awfully mean at the dinner party like undesirably so you know she has no reason to be you know if it was neil and i can understand that this neil character screwed them all over and kind of screwed them out of their cut you know of their discovering andre toulon's puppets and the 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 secret to you know giving life to inanimate objects i mean what is this what it all comes down to because they were all you know that's what you end up finding out in the course of things that that, that's what they were all gathered to to do you know that's what they were all partners for but it wasn't the the wife's fault she just cuts this poor woman down to the bone and alex for all his great trying he feels miserably at keeping the peace he really does it's funny because he's the only one that really speaks up trying to tell her to you know chill out (laughs) and and dana just keeps coming down on megan and it's funny because megan has been nothing but kind and shown them like the utmost hospitality and you know i have to say it Dana's just pissing all over her hospitality. And you know what you don't <laughs> do? You know what you don't do? You don't piss on house hospitality. <laughs> Neil Gallagher won't allow it. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> no, he won't allow it, damn it. But yeah, like Alex is the only one who speaks up once or twice, but he's Alex is such a you know, sort of bitch character that he doesn't really have any like authority <laughs> to make her stop and you always and, think he's going to be like a hero of the movie but he to be quite he, honest and i love paul Lamatt, you know i love him as an actor but but he's a lame duck he's, yeah, he's just he's his character very, is a lame duck he's very restrained and sort of just he's you know meek as well and i don't think not until you know i think megan storms out was it and then alex follows her i think at that point then frank or right around that point frank finally says something yeah he says something to the effect of you like don't you think you were a little harsh on her and it's like well what how how long ago (laughs) and carissa literally says nothing the entire time she just sits there and eats Yeah, it's it's uh, it's crazy. They're just like, yep, we're just gonna sit here and eat this shrimp cocktail while this our hostess is being attacked by our friend. You know, yep. Uh, nice people, nice people, aren't they? But but again, Teresa should have stayed away from the fireplace. Is the next note I have? Like I had that written down twice. Should have stayed away from that fireplace. But then it also goes to. 
you know, the, the, the goes to the outside scene right before Teresa's death, where he said they're all psychics, but they're all magicians brought together by Neil for re- the research on Egyptian techniques to give, you know, life to inanimate objects, thus the puppets. But then it goes right from the de- from Teresa's death from that Teresa's death scene to a really confusing Megan just screams and faints, and Neil is just in the coffin there, you know, and not in the coffin, but in the coffin waiting room, uh, just sitting creepily. And which yep. I've had to do that for a movie role before. Let me say that that is no that is no joke to try to sit and stare. A hole in the wall, you know what I mean, and not move a muscle while people are moving around you and talking around you. It's very difficult. To his credit, in his scenes where he has to do that, Jimmy Jimmy Skaggs was a trooper, and he does pretty well. There's only one point later on where I can see movement. So, I did notice it once, but I didn't. I didn't write it down. I, I did remember one point where he kind of shifted. The scene where Dana comes back to her room and Neil was sitting in her room and she starts to. Oh, yes. And she tries to do in the spell. She starts to do her chanting and she's she's uh, brushing the smoke around. There's a moment right when she approaches him, right as she raises her arm and her arm crosses his our view of him right as it goes up. You can see him blank. Ah, see, I caught something else where he was sitting and moving and he flinches for a moment mm-hmm. when there's a noise like off camera and he just slightly flinches. But still, it's a pretty great job. It, he does a good job of playing dead. Not not an easy feat. So some of those scenes to sit there with your eyes open to and still be really still like that's not easy stuff. So, But Jimmy Skaggs, he was he was great in this. He plays a great I mean, a great villain, and he was great in Ghost Town. Uh, was it an, another, you know, Charlie Van flick? You know, uh... he's a he was a very charismatic actor. He was he had a lot of presence and always left an impression. And I think you know, for as little screen time as what Neil has, most of his screen time is dead as as an inanimate corpse. But when he finally shows up. Uh, he is great, and I I have had conversations about this franchise with friends before, you know. And a topic that's come up is is you know who you know who do you think the the best or the worst, you know, on a scale. You know, it's kind of like us saying, oh well, what what do you think are the good puppet masters or the bad ones? Well, there's levels to that too. Who do you think some of the best, you know, human master villains, are, you know, human villains are? Um, or who, who are some of the worst. I think Neil Gallagher is one of the best human villains, quote-unquote human villains, because he's obviously uh, reanimated in this movie, but I still consider him human. Yeah, it's still technically human. Yeah, So, but I think that, and a lot of that small amount of screen time, though, he's such a good villain, because Jimmy Skaggs was such a good actor. Yeah, again, one of the things I loved about uh, Ghost Town, it was just, he sold it. You know, you can have you can have a you know somebody like in this case with the Alex Whitaker character that's kind of a lame duck. It, you know, it, you can have that care, kind of character, and it's you know forgivable. 
But if you yeah. don't have a good villain, that's pretty unforgivable. But this yeah. movie does have a good villain. You know, he he was really good at playing bad guys. But to his credit, too, Jimmy Jimmy Skaggs was really great as Buteo, the native in the Oblivion films for Full Moon as well. Oh, yeah. That's so, right. He, yeah, yeah, he was in, in both the Oblivion, Oblivion movies. Yep. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot that was him. <laughs> oh, that 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 kind of blows my mind now that I think about it. Now it makes you want to go back and rewatch that. <laughs> well, we might have to. We might have to. I mean, it is a full moon movie, so I mean, we'll get to it eventually. Well, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, go back to it. But you know, Frank, like the next note I had here was this: Frank is just weird, man. He's just skeezy and slimy and i don't feel sorry for him you know when he finally does kind of get his mm-hmm. he's not a character i have any kind of sympathy for no not at all but him it, or, i i don't feel sorry for either of them when they finally go i do as much of an obnoxious heartless bitch as what dana is i feel like she's more sympathetic than frank or carissa She's at least honest. She's yeah. at least honest with who, who she is. They're just kind of like on the skeezy side, but in, you know, kind of pretending they're very, very normal. Mm-hmm. And I didn't notice the one thing that was kind of subtle, you know, was when uh, Megan is at Megan's character is at the the coffin, the open coffin that has Neil in it, where she's sitting there, she's talking to him, and and you can see Jester in the window window behind her, silhouetted in the window behind her. I'm not sure if this was a conscious decision by the actress, but she holds her hand under his uh, his nose. I think she's like, she was wondering if he was still alive herself and was feeling for breath. Well, you know, uh, when you get to the end, yeah, it makes me. It always, I always kind of reevaluate what was going on with Megan the whole time. So yeah, it's true. It's true. But we'll get to that eventually. We'll get yeah. There's a lot more going on with Megan than I think is what's displayed in the the body of the movie. So but then we get that that nifty little uh, bathtub scene that like you were talking about with uh with our beloved Clarissa and Frank, where she's like it. <laughs> she's just got that mundane dialogue. She's like, oh, do you think she's pretty? <laughs> like, Gallagher's, uh, wife, Gallagher's wife, I mean. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean. She has two or three lines of dialogue there where she says or asks something to Frank, and she ends it with, like, like that. She's like, Gallagher's wife, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean. Like, why are you talking like this? <laughs> <laughs> You're, you know, feel like saying you're a grown ass woman. You know, why are you talking like you're five years old? <laughs> yeah, just it's a very, it's a very weird speech pattern. To I, I didn't understand it, but you know, it makes gives her a memorable moment. So. Yeah, it does. It does. But as we undercut between that and Dana's outside doing little. Uh, you know, little spells on everybody's doors. I, I love when she has the bloody chicken's foot and she just grabs Alex's hand and just mm-hmm. wipes blood all over it. And she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm here to, I'm doing this to protect you. And his reply is just to go, yeah, thanks. 
Like, yeah. like for protection. For protection. Because <laughs> he, like, he knows she's apeshit crazy, so he just rolls with it. Yeah, he's like, uh, I've already seen what you could do at the dinner table. I'm not going to contradict you. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to let you have it. <laughs> I think he's, at this point, you have to consider, they've probably all known each other for an inordinate length of time. Uh, longer than we think so he's probably i feel like at that point alex is just so desensitized to dana's eccentric behaviors that <laughs> her wiping blood on his palm with a severed chicken's claw is just sort of like yeah okay thanks it's kind of p- part of the co- part of the course right <laughs> it's like thanks now let you know let me leave <laughs> so i don't have to talk to you kind of this thing is just another just another tuesday with dana you know exactly then we get we find out uh, Blade and Tunnel are, are little peepers. They're peeping in on everybody while they're well. Carissa and Frank are busy getting it on on the Clark Gable Carol Lombard bed, mm-hmm. and just the most awkward sex scene. I, I, I'm not maybe not the world's most awkward sex scene, but it's 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 pretty damn awkward. <laughs> it's definitely one of the most unsexy sex scenes I think I've seen in a movie. <laughs> Yes, I would. I would uh, agree with you. There are two characters I have zero interest in seeing get naked or couple. <laughs> so right, right. It's it, just like if there's any couple you want to see get naked in in this movie, it's probably well, I'm gonna say it's probably really not anybody. You know, but no, nope. th- yes. There's <laughs> and and their and their sex scene is very you know, it's it's. I mean, it is graphic, but it's it's very has a very sleazy vibe to it. It is it's like fifty percent sleazy, fifty percent really vanilla. Like their their way of by way of kinky was just like, hey, I'm going to tie your hands up and light some candles. It's yep. just very vanilla uh, kinky. Like, yeah, we're not going to get too weird here. But then you know the the idea that we got these two puppets that are <laughs> watching them. Then they, you know, Blade, this is the first time we get this. I think this is the first time we see Tunneler on camera ever in the series, right? Yeah, he, he wasn't peeps, in the. Be- no, he peeps through the keyhole there with right after Blade looks through, and then when you get that great shot of the door opening up and he's standing in the doorway, that's the first real quality shot of him we get, and that's that's actually a a great shot. I love the shot through the keyhole that's uh, a close-up of Blade, and you really get a really get a good look at his eyes, and you see he's got the daggers in his eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, not just the hook for one hand and the blade, the you know the blade for the other hand, but I love the 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 eyes. It just you know, as you well know, I have a Blade figurine on on my on my desk here. So like Blade, Blade is my homeboy. I, I love Blade. He's my favorite puppet. Oh yeah. Now I haven't I haven't asked yet. Now there's I know I I looked uh looked up on the IMDb and Wiki. There is between thirty five and forty different various puppets throughout the whole franchise. Do you have a favorite puppet? Uh, I can tell you who my two favorite top favorites are. I love Tunneler. And I love Torch. See, uh, my favorite favorites is Blade and Torch. I do, my... I do, yeah, I do love Blade, um, but I feel like he's the more obvious, popularized choice. I think 
I think Tunnler is underappreciated personally. Uh, and Torch, when what what few bits we get him over the course of this entire franchise, which is criminally few times, he is a total boss and um, an amazing puppet character. Um, I I am not a fan of Jester personally. I know a lot of people love Jester. I, I like Jester. I mean, I, I like Jester. I don't love him, but I like him. I've heard some people hypothesize that he's like, you know, the ma- the the the, you know, brains behind the operation or kind of like the head of the puppets at points. I believe none of that. I think he does nothing <laughs> useful. <laughs> he just sits there. He looks cool. He's a neat neat character visually. Um, I just think that in the scope of things, he accomplishes nothing. And in the overall scope of the entire franchise. Um, he kills no one. Yeah, Jester doesn't kill anybody, does he? I mean, most of the kills we get are, are Blade. Yeah, a is. little bit we see of, uh, well, I mean, Leech Woman probably has, what, would be about second, I imagine? Leech Woman has a good amount of kills, but I, I will go on record and say, like, I'm not a fan of Leech Woman either. Uh, I know later on she will have a lot more significance as a character, but I just... She's a neat character. I don't really believe that, you know, it's very fatal what she does. So I don't really fully buy when she kills people. I mean, it's creepy. I mean, it's definitely creepy. I mean, you know, for Leech one to to vomit up leeches that drain your blood. But definitely good. And I think that was probably the point. But I just don't think that she is really as effective as maybe she is represented to be. And she's just. I, I'm just not a fan of her. I know that she is David Dakota's favorite puppet. It's really, it's, huh? Yeah, I mean, I, that's why I guess if we all again, like I always say, if we like the same thing, that'd be boring. But and yeah, you know, I don't see it. I'll say it just at just to shock and awe people. Honestly, I love Tank. I love like underdog, like lesser popular puppets. I like Tank, even though he's in it for like a a moment. I love. Blitzkrieg. I love Ninja. <laughs> I've, always, I've always been a fan of Decapitron. Decapitron. Decapitron's a great puppet. He's just not feasible. <laughs> so, like, if if I were part of the team, I would so not want to be on the missions with Decapitron because I'd have to be like lugging around his head and helping right. him change, change his gear and shit. He'd be like that coworker you got stuck with that you're like picking up their slack and helping like finish all their work for them. That's what I feel like he would be. He's a cool character though, but I would I like I would not want to work with him. If I no, no, no. And no. it just it kind of it, it, it's I mean I understand that they made a you know if they were going to do a solo puppet movie that they did Blade. It made sense that they did Blade. The fact that they're doing Doctor Death as a solo puppet movie I'll, it's kind of yeah. just to get off on a tangent it doesn't make sense to me. I'll say this. I, another one I forgot is this. I love Six Shooter. He's a great character too. But um, I will agree. Doctor Death was a weird choice. But um, one thing I know a lot of fans have not been thrilled about was the fact that we never got any real, you know, continuation or closure with the retro timeline. So maybe that spinoff movie will offer some closure to that. Maybe yeah. 
I, I'm I'm guessing though. I really don't know. I'm not a fan of most of any of the retro puppets. <laughs> I don't like the looks of them. I, I really I don't like the looks of a lot. And retro Pinhead and Retro Blade are really just goofy looking. Some of them look they look very odd. Uh, and you get the two randos, you know, you, you've got Dr. Death and Cyclops. You know, they're they're okay characters. I just they're not for me personally. Uh, I think some of the Nazi puppets are just sort of silly. Like then <laughs> Bombshell. Bombshell was originally uh, discussed to have been in part six back in the day, and then she was not used and, you know, later brought back, you know, and used in Axis Rising. But, uh... I mean, yeah. as far as, like, puppets and their looks, I I, I think Mephisto kind of has the best look. He's, like, he's like a demonic blade, you know, yeah, and I, I love that look. A, a, a puppet that is funny, but really not, um... <laughs> doesn't fit into our pc world today uh uh kamikaze is a super racist caricature of a puppet so no uh, so that yeah 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 that's a definite i mean well you know when there's puppets like uh you know different series but when there's puppets like crack or again a very non-pc <laughs> puppet but the homunculus is cool too homunculus, homunculus was cool yeah and but honestly, I do I do agree Tank is, is a is a good uh secondary puppet, you know. I'll say this. I think that Tank is an interesting character and in that he is of the Toulon troop of puppets, he would have been the one that was not a Toulon puppet. So I think that they could have done some interesting stuff with him after the fact if they had chose to, um, because he was a McGrew puppet. But, um, you know, missed opportunity. So Exactly. But, you know, with all these spin-off movies they're doing, you just never know. Yeah, there's. I, I feel like there's even some that we're missing. But, you know, a good point to bring up, especially since we're talking about part one is you know the movie opens with you know uh con <laughs> you know the, yeah the, the the marionette puppet who gets put in the trunk and then he never comes out of the trunk so um one thing i had i had hopes for the axis branch of films when they were doing it i was hoping that they would bring con back and utilize him in a more forefront fashion and maybe show that he got killed or destroyed somehow. And that's why he never came back out of the trunk. But uh, it never happened. So, Yeah, they do just kind of abandon him after that opening. That's, that's pretty much it for him, isn't it? Yeah, he's, he's never utilized. And I, know, I, you know, I don't know about Khan, but I know a lot of the the characters and a lot of the end points of some of these movies, they are expounded upon more in some of the comics, like the action lab comics. I know in the action lab comics, there's a lot of Neil Gallagher stuff. Gallagher is a big factor through a lot of it. They even have Leroy show up in action lab comics for puppet master. Dana's uh, taxidermied dog that she carries around like he's alive. Oh, the dog that pops back up at the at the end? 
Mm-hmm. Leroy is in, Leroy does appear in the comics as well. Huh. So, so they and you know there's even comics from Action Lab that actually pick up after the ending of part two and actually tell you a story after the puppets leave in the van with the Elsa puppet. So so many branching storylines. You know these. Uh, Charlie was was creating a multiverse long before Marvel had to dip their toe into the pond. Yeah, there's and just you know not even looking at the whole full moon catalog. There's so much. Uh, depth of content just within the puppet master world you know right so, and especially gonna... when you consider crossover series like you know the crossover crossing them over with uh demonic toys and things like that you know i mean like i know there was the comic where doll man killed the entire uh mm-hmm. full moon doll- universe full moon universe yep and your favorite character right <laughs> yeah he's a great character i'm just not a fan of this first vehicle so <laughs> just like, not a fan of the first ride right he's a he's a great character though and oh yeah, yeah. uh he's no jack death no he's not he's uh but puppet master does you know go all over the place and reach a lot of places too because if, if you go farther down the line nope nope uh irony intended there <laughs> to go far <laughs> down the time or up the timeline i guess to things like access termination you know you've got appearances by you know like ivan ivanov who would be a character that has you know appeared in the decadent evil franchise and you know had a, a blip in the first evil bong and uh is in raven wolf towers you know and that that opens up the puppet master world to a lot of other connecting yeah. factors than the full moon universe like you know de- definitely the demonic toys and hideous and blood dolls and doll graveyard and you know it's a, i would it's, like to think at least in, in my mind they're all connected you know er- everything and, and, kind of exists within that same universe you know especially like with the doll man kills the full moon universe that pretty much says it right there for me yeah, and I I feel like they do personally. So you know they just they just really took it you know I think to the nth degree by having Ivan Ivanov appear in that puppet master suit. Right. So there you go. It's all connected. <laughs> but where did we leave off? We got off on a tangent about our favorite puppets and 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 whatnot. We were at well Frank and uh, Clarissa's death. Or their, their proposed death scene because they Blade and Tunneler were getting a peep show. Tunneler sneaks in, and another that's another great David Allen effect. I think this is one of the most beautiful like shots. Is when Tunneler goes straight for Clarissa's face and tunnels straight down her head. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, that's some of the best David Allen work. Period. Lately, yeah. at least in my, in my mind. And but then you know. Tunneler finishes her off, and then we get our first glimpse of Leech Woman. Again, I have to say, the the puppet with, like, the just a, a superpower, I guess you could say, or an ability that just, you know, isn't that all that th- threatening to me. And, like, you know, she's spitting out the slugs from, you know, Night of the Creeps at you, you know, it'd be one thing, but these are just leeches. It's like, mm-hmm. this seems like a really, uh, to, to me, it seems like a real inefficient way to kill somebody. I mean, when you get back in the day, you know, maybe they still do it nowadays. Leeches were used for medical purposes to, like, clean your blood. 
So right. You know, I'm like, how deadly are they? But you know. maybe they're poisonous, and we've just never been in, let in on it. Who that knows? Is, maybe we'll find that out in the Leech Woman spinoff movie. It's com- it's coming out in 2022, right? <laughs> it could be. <laughs> I'm putting it out there into the ether. You know, just Anything? saying it like it, it it could happen. It might happen. Say we that, re- when Tumblr kills Carissa, though, like that that shot of him coming up and charging her is amazing. Yeah, the that's sound- the shot I was talking about. That's a beautiful yeah. shot. The sound effect that accompanies it from above sounds kind of like a can opener and always makes me laugh. <laughs> Which is like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does sound like one of those big automatic can openers just like slowing down and like getting caught up or something. Yeah, there's a couple instances of really odd sound effect choices. Uh, and I'll point another one out later, but that that always has made me laugh, even since '89 when I first first saw it. But then when <clears throat> Leech Woman shows up, that's that's a great shot of her first big reveal to uh, coming popping up over the side of the bed to seduce Frank. Yeah, and like, was he so unaware that that he couldn't tell that was a tiny tiny uh, puppet that was do, do, you know that was. Fondling, that. yeah, that, that, yeah. I mean, he couldn't figure that out, and he's like, "Ooh, well, that's new." And it's just like, um, like about as big as the tip of your tongue, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Even the whole tongue, it's just like the tip. It's like, I don't know. Oh my! But, but yeah, Frank. Frank is a character. I was just like, "Please hurry up, kill this man, please." Just so we could get to like, I, I consider it to be one of the probably one of the most mean deaths is when they take out uh, Dana. You know, she comes, she's in the hallway. She comes on to Alex, but he don't want any of it. He's she's just, just kind of like, you want a quick romp? You want to? She's like, why not? And he's like, he basically just I, says, you know, given our history, you know, I, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> Her line, she's like, I was thinking we could do a little rearranging of the walls ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> It like, just I, seems. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, he's is just like, nope, nope. I am not inviting that kind of crazy into my life. And and good for Alex for making the right decision there. But uh, you know, this is where Neil pops up in Dana's room, and she's not as creeped out as she should be. You know, she she should be a lot more creeped out that he's just sitting in her room holding a drink, staring a hole in the wall. Like, oh, it's you. <laughs> yeah. She's not faced. Is this the point where you were saying you caught him blank? Yes, when she starts doing her chant and spreading the the smoke around. When she approaches him, there's a moment where she, camera-wise, she passes her arm across his face. And as her arm's coming back up over his face, you can see him blink briefly. Ah, I never caught that before. I might have to rewatch that part just to catch it. But Pinhead comes in uh, again. Great name. <laughs> Not my favorite puppet. He's just kind of clumsy. 
you know, he's got a great look. I love the, you know, the big arms, the big hands with the little itty bitty tiny head. He's just, he's again, a ground puppet for me. I don't love him, but I don't hate him. And, yeah. Same. He's effective, though. He's strong and he does have a good body count tally in the bigger scope of things. He kills a lot of people. So, yeah. But it's funny, though, in this one, it, it takes Pinhead and Blade for the assist to take out Dana because she puts up on one hell of a fight. She, you know, she gets pummeled by Pinhead's big ass fists, you know, almost knocks her the, the hell out. She gets her legs sliced open by Blade. You know, she crawls into the elevator and then they proceed to kill her off and finish her off in the elevator by slicing her throat. And I kind of love the one shot. Again, it's great camera work where the elevator opens up and you see her sitting there and the camera just pans slowly over and dollies over into that close up of uh, Jester. Again, you know, yep. his just his head spinning, you know, not really killing anybody or doing anything, just looking menacing. Enjoy that head spinning because it doesn't always spin in the sequels. <laughs> that is true. That is true. They went a little less spinny back you know, in the following sequels, didn't they? Yeah, definitely. Oh, but then, uh, you know, so now everybody is pretty much, everybody is pretty much dead except for Alex and Megan. And she shows up, you know, we don't know it at this point, but it's a, it's another dream sequence. She shows up in his room is like, hey, I got, I wanted to show you something, you know, and it's a scene straight from his nightmares, you know, of her dancing in the big ballroom and what a gorgeous ballroom. This looks like something almost like out of a Kubrick film, you know, with the, the mass has very, um, Kind of an eyes wide shut kind of feel to it, you know? Yep. But, uh, you know, then he gets, he kind of wakes up in bed to another nightmare. So it's a nightmare within a nightmare where he gets that. It's such a quick scene. I can't imagine the logistics of putting these three, these three severed heads into his bed, you know, almost like an eight heads in a duffel bag kind of scene with Joe Pesci. I'm not sure if you get the reference if you've seen the movie, but that's what <laughs> I, don't, I always think of. I saw eight heads in a duffel bag in the theater. <laughs> so did I. I think I saw it at the drive-in. We were the two. Yeah, but, you know, it, it was a great little scene, but it lasts like a, a total of like five seconds. Yeah. And it's just such a great visual that, to only be on the screen for such a short amount of time. Yeah. But, you know... Then we get back once he wakes up, you know, from the actual nightmare in reality, Megan is there and is leading him not to the uh, the the ballroom where Neil was there always saying, you can't save her, Alex. She takes him to where the diary is. So this is the part where it gets kind of murky about, like, what Megan's involvement was like. Cause she had said that she never, you know, was allowed upstairs, but she seemed to know a lot more than she was letting on. Yes. She so it's just like, you know, was she sneaking it? Yeah, you know, to me it was just like, was she sneaking, you know, uh, peeks at this diary? Or, you know, sneaking, you know, peeks at what uh, Neil was doing with his work? Or was, you know, did Neil kind of let her in on it and she was just playing dumb? I've always kind of wondered that myself. I feel like, and I'll go out on a limb here, I feel like it was something that she was, since, since we're deep diving this topic here... I feel like it's something that she probably really dug into behind his back. That's what I always kind of thought. I, I always leaned that way a little bit. 
you got to take into consideration the after the fact point where like they're so not on the same team when it's revealed that he is alive because he is beating the crap out of her and just having one over on her. I think that Gallagher and her were not on the same uh, page, learned behind his back. That's right, my- right. Okay, yeah, because I, it was, it's the dinners, uh, the dinner of death scene, as I call it, when is the big reveal that the puppets are in the the dead dog is sitting on the table and, and Frank, Carissa and Dana are all sitting there very dead. Yeah. And I, I notice here and during the scene, their wounds are still bleeding as they're sitting there. <laughs> like her neck wound and like of Clarissa's mouth wound from Tunneler happened are still dripping blood. It was just a nice attention to detail. Most of the time they just dress an actor up, put the fake blood on him and let him, the, the, tell him just sit there. But the fact that the blood was still kind of flowing, I, I thought was just a nice touch. But yeah, when she when he when Neil has the big reveal, when Jimmy Skaggs does the big reveal that he's still alive and everything, you know, I, I did get the idea that Megan was not up for this. Was just was did not like she was not going along with this at all. Yeah, she does. She straight up at you know they ask him, uh, you know, why would you want to do this and everything, and he's just has the same answer every supervillain says: I want to live forever. It's a good answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 that's not not the worst answer in the world, and it and it's one that I think it it makes your lead villain, even though he's a skeezy bastard and an evil son of a bitch, it makes him relatable because what's something that probably every person has thought about at least once <laughs> once a day in their life is I'd like to live forever. Mm-hmm. Now here, let me put let me let me posit you this: I hypothesized that they might not have been on the same page. With Toulon's magic, Neil killed himself so that he could live forever. By the by, the laws of this movie, we see the movie open with Toulon animating Jester, and he does it with a verbal magic spell and hand motions. That's right. Yes, he does. If Neil shot himself, quote unquote. Blew out his vast knowledge. Who said the spell to yeah, the animal? If it wasn't him, it, and it, it, it would have to have been her because the the puppets really don't have the the power they, of speech. They can kind of grunt and moan and make noises, but they don't talk. Yeah, they don't have they don't have s- speech capabilities. It's it's another one of those things where it's like, well, maybe she did. They didn't. He did know that she knew, because how did he? I never really understood how he reanimated himself. Yeah, it doesn't make it again. The puppets couldn't have done that for him. There, I don't think that they're that capable. No, no. I, well, again, they didn't have the power of, of speech. They couldn't have done the incantation or the spell. Now, if we were looking at, say, two or three, you know, where it is a chemical compound that is made and used with, you know, brain, you know, brain cells, yada, yada, yada. They could have done that and made, you know, whatever, I guess. They could have made the serum and injected him, but by the by the logic of how things work in in this film, I don't I don't think that that's uh, 
a plausible option. I feel like someone had to to do the spell on his dead corpse. So maybe it was Teresa. She was creepy. <laughs> maybe she did it all all herself. Of everyone, he brought Teresa back to life. And she just pops up for a second, and they don't really show how she goes down, do do they? She pops up and and corners them, but I don't think... Yeah, when they try and escape, you know, after the the run-in with Gallagher, she kind of stops them at the doorway and says, don't touch the body, you know, and she's got the, the poker. Poker, yeah, that they knocked her out with. They just kind of run the other direction. She's never seen or heard from again. It's never mentioned what happened to her. Now that I'm thinking about it, did did Neil reanimate her or did Megan reanimate her? Yeah, Maybe. that's a good question. Maybe Teresa reanimated Gallagher. And then, you know, because she's trying to, you know, keep Megan within the walls of Bodega Bay. She doesn't want her to escape. So maybe Teresa did it, <laughs> you know? I, I never even thought of Teresa having that much possible more character depth. <laughs> than, well, it's yeah. just the fact that she pops up and she says, you know, don't touch the body. And that's really, that, that's it. I mean, they, they go inside the elevator with, you know, Neil fighting off the puppets. Yep. And she's never seen again. So, yeah. I mean, the, the other human characters you see get brought back to life using the method you know the egyptian method of reanimation uh other than obviously gallagher and andre himself in part two so i don't think there's ever any other instance we see where a human is brought back from the dead uh, yeah i know think about it i know there's a couple that i've only seen once but I do have to refresh, but I'm, I believe you're right. They, she is the only human, uh, the only other human brought back that way. Yeah, you're huh. only interesting. Think, yeah, truthfully, our only real instances to my to my direct knowledge are Teresa Gallagher and Toulon himself in parts one and two. So that makes a very unique instance. Yeah, it does. Raises so many questions, so many questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I'm like, man, could Teresa have been working with Gallagher? You know, I kind of like that idea. That's what I, I, I was kind of thinking upon this viewing because I, I just, I guess I never thought of it before because they don't ever, I mean, even when, uh, you know, Whitaker, Alex Whitaker's fighting, trying to get into the elevator when, uh, you know, they're holding Gallagher down after they've cut off, after Blade has cut off his fingers and they're drilling into his side, you know, and Leech Woman is, you know, spitting a leech down his throat, a big giant leech. I mean, they're, they're all, all the, all the puppets are working in tandem. They're showing the shots of like them outside the elevator. She's just gone. So yeah, it uh, raises a lot of questions there. But the one thing we didn't mention though was the reason why they turn on him is because he actually even says the words, I'm tired of experimenting with these silly, these silly little wooden puppets. And he throws, I think it's Jester, isn't he? Doesn't he toss Jester across the room and, and like hurts him? That's when the, the puppets start to turn on him. Yeah, it damages his his head alignment. Yep, messes up his head spinning techniques. And that's where he, that's where I say that's the big mistake he made, you know, hurt and jester. But again, in, in this big ending, you know, I don't know that like 
the Alex's character was, I don't think he was really meant to be a hero, but if he is, he's a lame one. He gets knocked out. He gets knocked around <laughs> this, so easily by Gallagher. And, you know, but it's really the pinhead tunneler blade and leech working together that takes Neil out. I mean, in, in this one, I mean, even though the, the puppets take out a, a couple of the, our main characters, I mean, essentially, they assassinate the the lead villain. I mean, what, what? Gallagher signs his own second death warrant by by tossing Jester and declaring that he's through with them. That I think for them that was pretty much fighting words. So, and he was fucked right from then that point on. So, yeah. I wrote down here in my notes: big mistake, hurting a puppet. And I'm like, that's it. Yeah. You're done. You didn't understand. <clears throat> Physics of pissing off Andre Toulon's puppets. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He didn't, did he? Metaphysically speaking, of course. Me- yeah, metaphysically <laughs> speaking. <laughs> uh, well, Leon, whereas Alex might not have been strong enough to destroy uh, Neil, the the puppets do. We get kind of a lighthearted good- goodbye. Another great uh, match shot of uh, you know the miniature of uh, Bodega Bay. And then I remember watching this for the first time. I, I I I had the same thought going through my head this time watching it as I did the first time I was watching it. When Megan is walking up the steps with Dana's stuffed dog, mm-hmm. uh, Leroy, right? I think it was. Leroy. You know, I kept thinking either one or two things going to happen. That dog is going to come to life in her arms or she's going to go upstairs and quote unquote reanimate it. But I love that she, when she's holding it, it's obviously, you know, a taxidermy dog. But yeah. when she rounds the one corner, it's just all of a sudden it's, it's, it's just fluffy and alive and it's such a cute little fella. And she says, like, here you go, boy. And she and she makes sure to put him down on the steps so you can get that final shot of him. Hopping, you know, cute little Leroy hopping up the steps at the camera. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great shot, great way to 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 end it, and it leaves it mysterious. You know, was she involved to some extent? Did she know more than she let on? I think so. Uh, You know, characters all died, and the dog got life. (laughs) Right. So, And, and you know, in any movie, to me, where the dog or the cat lives and and the people die, is just fine by me. I'm fine with that. I have to say, as far as Gallagher's quote unquote second death, at one point when they're in the ballroom and he's explaining what's happened, you know, and he wants to live forever, he says, you know, you know, I think Alex even says, you know, you know, that he's like, there's no way, there's something about him, his death needing to be unnatural for him to die. And he's like, it would require the entire destruction of this body, something that you're not capable of. And so he gets in the elevator and getting some fingers chopped off and a leech shoved down his throat and his neck drilled is the quote unquote total destruction of this body. Right. <laughs> well, he, 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 he gets his neck drilled. He's got blades hook in his mouth. He's getting a leech down the throat and then Pinhead breaks his neck. I, I think those things all together makes for one hell of an unnatural death. That is the... In the entire scope of the franchise, that is the best shot of a leech exiting leech woman's mouth as well. Yes, it is. It looks it's the most realistic looking. It's you know. very it's very gnarly and repulsive looking. Uh, yeah. 
more so because in in some ways I feel like it feels unnatural and not and I don't mean that in that I think it looks fake. It looks not right. <laughs> yeah. So, it looks uh, gross. Like you said, gnarly is a good way to describe it. And for me, I mean, I don't know, like when you see that, like who, if you had to, in my mind, when I watch these movies, I always have when there's a, when there's a posse of villains, I always, I, for one, when I'm watching a horror movie, I always keep a body count tally in my head. Something I've always done since I was a child. If for a movie like this, I keep a body count tally and a character count tally. So. Who would you yourself, if I had challenged you right now, who would you say gave the final death blow on Neil Gallagher's second life? I think it's Pinhead. You think it was Pinhead? Because it, the, the way he, he turns his head towards the camera, you get that sound of his neck popping and P- Pinhead's holding his head. I thought it was him twisting his, his head to the side and breaking his neck. That's and how it could, I, I always took it. It could very well be. I, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer for this. Um, now, what, now, what do you think? For me, it was always... For me, it was always Tunneler. Because just getting a drill through the side of your neck is immediately fatal. <laughs> like, you're not going to live from that. But, uh, yeah, and not, and not a drill that big either, you know? Good point. Good point. But again, I think it was all simultaneous in in a way. You know, I think if you know nobody's opinion is wrong. I'm not saying you're you're right and I'm wrong or vice versa. But the only person that could probably tell us otherwise is uh, Mr. Band himself or David Schmoller so, uh, or Ken Hall even. Uh, but um, in my mind, I always considered Tumblr getting getting a two two kills in this movie. So, <laughs> Tumblr is a smidge more powerful. Oh <laughs> so. uh, yeah, but him and uh, him and Torch together make a formidable uh, some formidable opponents. I would love for there to be like a Torch spinoff or a Tumblr spinoff. I think they're I think those are great characters. But I know Tumblr is not a he's not a cost effective puppet to do anymore. Man, it's just too bad, uh, you know. That we'll probably never, you know, of all the solo puppet movies, we're getting a Doctor Death when we really we need a we need a torch and a tunneler movie. And can you imagine <laughs> in the scope of things, a, a buddy puppet movie with t- torch and tunneler off doing their thing, like doing a little solo mission? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be, I'd be down for that. I it's, would too. The choice of characters for spinoff things like that always fascinates me too because it's like obviously blade was the main choice because he's he's the fan favorite you know so right what what thought process went into being dr death you know (laughs) you know maybe it's a they're hearkening back to what you touched base on maybe they're going to do a little bit uh tie up some some retro puppet master you know stuff and maybe that's why they're bringing him back maybe it's a whole uh you know retro retread on retro possible you know same on the same coin different franchise but you know baby Lucy is a a character spinoff of demonic toys you know obviously baby Lucy is like the blade of that franchise you know she's the 
the main the main dog top dog in yeah that. yeah she's the face of the franchise right whereas everyone would be like oh you know they should do a jack movie next you know but i'm like man but i love mr static <laughs> Give me a, I, I would be totally down for a solo movie based on every character, every yeah. demonic toy. If you ask me, I would even be down for any of them. Soldier? Yep, even the soldier. Yeah, I did the soldier. So. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I do like the soldier a lot. I even like Teddy Bear. I always thought the kind of the, the uh, Teddy Bear was a, uh, was a spinoff character from Dolls myself, but that's me. Yeah. Yeah, they're all, they're all great characters. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, the choice for a, for an Oopsie movie made sense because she's basically the blade of that franchise. So, you know, get them out of the out of the gate and, you know, who knows where things could go next. So one thing Charles Band has always said is, is, quote unquote, we will make Puppet Master movies forever. They will never stop until he's dead. <laughs> And I'm sure even when he's dead that somebody will still continue to make Puppet Master movies. Whoever somebody. takes over the company then will continue it because it is the it is the top dog cash cow of the company. Again, like I said at the beginning of the show, it's the house of Puppet Master built. Yep. But that being said, we are at the end of the movie. So let's go ahead and get on with um, our final ratings and review. And summary of this, uh, you, you know as well as I do, scale from 1 to 10, sir. So, Puppet Master 1 is a pretty important movie. You know, it is it is literally the one that started everything. And, you know, like, like we've already discussed, it is a franchise that has seen so many installments, so many iterations in comic books and video game it really has reached a large scope there's a lot of depth to what's going on i think it's definitely obviously the most recognizable thing for me has ever done uh, and this this flagship installment uh you know brought enough to the table to really build a franchise help build full moon and get the get the ball rolling uh for the era of full moon that we all know and love most the paramount era you know this this was right out of the gate so um yeah they came out of the gate swinging i think definitely and and it has beautiful music great camera work the special effects by Dave Allen are as top-notch as stop-motion can get. Uh, there's no denying he was a king in the field, and these movies would not be as successful if they did not have Dave Allen. So uh, that he was the magician <laughs> that they, that they <laughs> the magician that Alex was all talking about. It wasn't Alex Whitaker or Dana Hadley or <laughs> any of these. Dave Allen was the magician. He was a bona fide special effects 
king and he helped add you know some realism and helped make inanimate objects feel lifelike and scary and believable and sympathetic and you know complex and you know i think his his effects are really to what helps us care about someone like blade or pinhead or even jester and you know which one yada yada so um right right it's got good kills uh i think some of the acting here and there uh is you know kind of up and down but uh and and it's an interesting enough plot though that as we you know just you and i discussing it now i mean i'm kind of looking back and reevaluating some things that i never really thought about so there is there is more depth to it than uh i had anticipated um great script i think david schmoller is uh an unsung master of horror i think the man has never gotten the level of respect that he deserves because he has made some incredible movies uh and this is just one of a really great resume um i don't think it's one of the best puppet masters but i don't think it's one of the worst um it, this I think will probably be my first half point review, <laughs> but I'm gonna give okay. the Puppet Master a seven point five. Nice, you're not too far from where I'm at. Uh, I came in at a seven. Okay. Yeah, and even seven for once. I'm not doing the point fives you did. Uh, that's all right though. But I think uh, this movie, what it suffers from, is a little bit of pacing issues. Uh, it's it's a little stale in some p- parts, you know, but it laid down the groundwork for the mythology that we would all come to know and love that is Puppet Master. And I think that's, you know, a lot of different factors. Uh, again, I'm just going to reiterate some, some things that you said. It's It's got a great script. It's got a fucking magical soundtrack. Great locations. The, the puppets are fucking amazing. And David Allen... You know, I use the term MVP quite a lot, you know, when I do these reviews and whatnot, but really he, he's the MVP of here. He's the, he's the, he's King Salami <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. His work is just, it's just, it's unparalleled in stop motion animation. You know, it, it's just, it's beautiful work to look at. And without, again, like you said, without his, his work in these first couple of movies, Puppet Master wouldn't be what, what it what it is. And he is the real magician. I think it benefits a lot from, you know, David Schmoller's direction from a guy who did like, you know, one of my, I think it's a, also a lesser loved movie, but I like it a lot in other world. Uh, you know, he wrote Ghost Town. He did a documentary that I love called Please Kill Mr. Kinski. It's very short, but uh, it's about his making of Crawl Space. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I highly recommend it out there. Uh, Tourist Trap, uh, Catacombs, which would also be known as Curse 4, you know, which is a loose (laughs) sequel in that series. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a a lot of different things uh, factor into this. You know, it's got one of my favorite actors. I do love Paul Lamont. Uh, I I think it's just the character that he's playing is... uh, 
he's just a, a lame duck kind of character. He they just didn't give him a lot to do. I think that's also a thing that kind of brings it down a little bit is this that main protagonist is just not really with it. But it's got a great villain. Jimmy Skaggs is great. Uh, love the Barbara Crampton cameo. And, you know, it's it's the beginning of something special. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's it just it just goes to remind me that, you know, I remember vividly like it was yesterday going to the grocery store, one of the places where we used to rent videotapes and going the day that Puppet Master one got put out on the shelf in my in my marsh grocery store marshes and I rented it day of release came home watched it and even though i gave this movie a 7.5 fell in love with it and it was the start of something for me as as a viewer it was the start of something very important and very special and obviously you know full moon is something that's very important to me as a viewer but uh Puppet Master is a huge factor in that. And it's crazy because I remember that. Like I said, I remember that. Like it's yesterday. I remember bringing that tape home, watching it for the first time, and just was like mind blown, you know? And then it came I remember. Out. I remember where I, I rented it from, too. <laughs> so, I remember yeah. exactly where I rented it from in my old hometown of DeMond, Indiana. There was a mm-hmm. there's a string of store, stores that used to be called Ben Franklin's, you know, a five and dime yeah. store. Oh, yeah. And yeah, they I would, Ben Franklin. <laughs> they had a little corner video store. And I remember right. renting we're renting this and, and bring it at home. You know, I, I rented it when it first came out, too. I was like 13. I think, you know, I was around about 13 when I, when it came out. And so I'm dating myself here. I'm an old fart, but that's okay. Uh, but yeah, I remember just sitting there just glassy eyed and watching it. And I kept, you know, at the time it was all about how did they do that? Yep. And it's yeah. now I know how they did it. You know, it's like with the video zones and just being the filmmaker myself, you know, ourselves, you know, we know how they do things. I don't think it's any less magical. No, totally. I, I, I don't. You know, and I'm glad that I have memories like that because, you know, you look back and you're like, 1989, that was 32 years ago at this point that we're recording this. 32 years, almost 400 full moon movies later, literally 12 with a 13th official installment to this franchise coming, plus two non canon installments. There has been a, a lifetime since this movie came out, and so much has happened since then. And, you know, at, that's the point, too, where I'll say that, you know, so much time has passed. We don't have a lot of these actors anymore, either. Uh, yeah, I mean, William Hickey is no longer with us. Uh, Jimmy Skaggs passed away a long time ago. Jimmy Skaggs is no longer with us, and... Uh, Matt Rowe is no longer with us, who played Frank. So I think Frank, Matt Rowe died around 03-ish, and Jimmy died around 04-ish. So, yeah, I did, I did look it up. I didn't know Matt Rowe had passed away, but I knew that Jimmy Skaggs had passed away in 2004. Um, and William Hickey, he's been gone since, what, 99? Yeah, he's been gone for 
yeah, a bit longer. But, you know, it's that that is also a, you know, testament to, you know, thankfully film is forever, you know. When you think of William Hickey, Puppet Master might not be the first thing people think of, you know, for horror fans, it probably is, you know, but it, you know, it could be Pritzi's honor if you're a, uh, a film snob, you know. <laughs> right. Or if you only know the movies that people got nominated for Oscars, Oscars for, right? If you're, if you're a highbrow comedy fan, quote unquote highbrow, maybe you would think of, you know, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Or if you're a lowbrow comedy fan, you probably think of the Jerky Boys. Yep, yep. That's what I was going to say, Jerky Boys. And did just all kinds of stuff. But, you know, it's one, these are, you know, this was one journey you know along each of these people's acting careers you know and i'm glad they i'm glad they took the trip signed up for full moon and yeah <clears throat> they did make a movie that all things considered has stood the test of time and is something very special i agree i agree i just i don't think you understand the metaphysicals <laughs> and that being said we'll end off on that note folks inside joke I think there I do understand i think i do understand i mean <laughs> oh man uh inside joke folks if you don't get it you need to watch the movie again <laughs> that being said uh thanks again dustin i know we did a couple of these uh in a row hopefully uh we got one more left in us for this week but that being said, folks, thanks once again for tuning in to Full Moon, uh, or say Cinema Degenerations, Howling at the Full Moon. Yeah, I'd love to be sanctioned by Full Moon. That would be great. <laughs> Charlie, I'm talking to you. If you're, if you're listening, we're talking to you. Give us official sanctioning. I would love love that, but we're not yet. But anyway, you have been listening to Cinema Degenerations, Howling at the Full Moon, and we have been reviewing and dissecting down to the bone. 1989's Puppet Master 1. And uh, thanks as always for listening and remember no strings attached. Metaphysically speaking, I killed myself. And using the techniques of the old Puppet Master, I brought myself back to life. Why did you kill them? Because we are all joined by our thoughts. And sooner or later, one of you would have learned that I had discovered Toulon's secrets. Besides, I'm tired of experimenting with silly little wooden puppets. I had no choice but to kill them. It was a small price to pay to live forever.